Well, for our final lesson, I have selected to write on uh, the final harvests. Uh, There's a lot of stuff we have not covered yet on eschatology, but I have to stop at some point. I think we've had 13 lessons, and you've probably learned stuff you didn't know before. We haven't covered hardly anything in the Revelation, but we have obviously had something to talk about for 13 weeks. So we're calling this one the final harvest for a very reason. Uh, we, We obviously are very concerned about winning the lost, and the world will wrap up with Jesus Christ winning as many people to him as possible. Uh, the wonderful thing is in the end we win, and there's nothing to be fearful of. God is a God of hope. He's not a God of fear. And so we don't have to look at eschatology as a doom and gloom thing. It's the end of God doing what he wants to do, and that's a good thing. And if we're born again, we're going to heaven, and that's all we need to know about. And between now and going to heaven, whether it be the rapture or just passing away because of old age, we got to win as many people to Jesus as possible. So let's jump in here and look at something about the final harvest. I guarantee you, you'll see things you've never seen this morning because this is a new lesson for me. Uh, Though the end of all things is at hand and the Lord, the righteous judge, will judge all things. And keep that in mind. God is still a judge. He's not just a big teddy bear in the sky. America has made Jesus Christ into this big Oprah Winfrey type thing where you just want to snuggle up. Mind you, he will judge you. 1 Corinthians 11 promises us that. It says that if we judge ourselves, we'll not be judged. But if we are judged, we're judged that we don't become partakers of the wrath to come. We cannot forget that aspect of our God. Now, he's a merciful God. We all enjoy the mercy of God. It's what God is born again. But we do not want to push God. The Bible says, behold, the goodness and severity of God. So there are both sides to God. We just want you to know that there is a judgment coming and the end of all things is at hand. And when he's done, not only will he send many people to an eternal damnation in the lake of fire, he'll burn this earth, wipe it off, wipe it away and then make a new one and start from scratch. So we we cannot forget that aspect of our God. He is a loving God. And for the heathen, he is very merciful because he's not willing that any should perish. But do not forget, people do go to hell every day, and it is the righteous judgment of God. The Bible even tells us it is appointed a man once to die, and then a vacation. No. It is appointed us once to die, and then uh, a nice cold glass of sweet tea. Once to die, and then judgment. You can't escape it. So we just want to be balanced in that. We're not saying that God's going to get you with a fly swatter. No, no, we believe in the mercy of God. But you do have to know there is a judgment coming. And we want to make sure we walk with Jesus Christ by judging ourselves every day. He is still a merciful God and Savior. He will give every person an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ. Let us make no mistake about it. God will cast many into eternal damnation for their rebellion. But it will be because they do not want to serve the true and living God. Jesus will be preached to everyone before the end comes. He promised that. He said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to every nation, and then the end shall come. One of the things that lets me know is that before the end comes, the gospel will still be preached up until the last year of the tribulation, the last moment of the tribulation. We'll cover that more here in a few minutes. What, What we're really looking at here are the final harvests, because the Bible says the Lord is the Lord of the harvest. And that will not stop being until this end has come. He will still be harvesting people even up until I believe, and we'll look at this in a minute, I believe even at the battle of Armageddon, he will still be harvesting people. Joel 2 calls it the valley of decision. And I believe, this is just my personal belief, you don't have to believe it. I think of all doctrines we can argue, eschatology is the best one because it hasn't happened yet. (laughs) 
I believe, though, the fact that Joel calls the battle of Armageddon the valley of decision, I believe even those wicked that are there in that valley about to be crushed and the winepress of God's wrath, I believe they'll have an opportunity to make a decision. I believe that because God is just merciful like that. If Mephibosheth, excuse me, Methuselah was the longest and oldest man that ever lived, and his name means after this one dies, judgment comes, speaking of Noah's flood, God was so merciful, he let that man live longer than anybody else to give as many wicked people possibility and opportunity to repent. In the end, Methuselah had to die, and the flood had to come, and in the end, only eight people got on that boat. And as I've taught, I'm convinced God would throw a couple of cats and a lion or a tiger or a bear off the boat to make room for more humans. But they didn't. So I believe even the fact that Joel calls that final battle the valley of decision, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, I think it lets us know that even until the moment Jesus Christ comes back with us as his army, he will still extend mercy to his enemies in that great valley. Why else would you call it the valley of decision? But Joel, I think, reveals a little bit of mercy. So let's look at these harvests here. The righteous harvests. There's three of them. Excuse me, four of them. The Lord will have his harvest of righteous souls. He is eager to send laborers out into his harvest. Look at Luke 10, 2. Therefore, he said unto them, Jesus Christ speaking, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest. Notice that's one of his names. The Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. We are those laborers. And one of the awesome things for me as being a pastor, we've got friends literally all over the world. And then you run into folks you're not friends with, but they're laboring all over the world. We met a pastor from India. We have missionary friends in India. And you hear this gospel is unstoppable. People are getting born again every day. Missionaries are being sent out every day. Pastors are starting new churches every day. Evangelists are doing the evangelistic thing every day. You can't stop this this gospel. Not even communism can stop it. Not even martyrdom can stop this gospel. The Lord Jesus is the Lord of the harvest, and he is raising up laborers. We just have to make sure we're one of them. That's where a lot of Christians miss it. Oh, Lord, send the labor. And he's saying, I'm trying to send you. You pray for the labor, you might be praying for you. That's right. Amen. Uh, that's one of the only things that Jesus Christ taught us to pray concerning the Lord. Pray that he would send laborers. That, that's repeated in three of the four gospels. Send laborers, Lord. Look at James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. That's, it's letting us know the Lord's going to come, but what's he waiting for? Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Jesus taught us in John's gospel, Jesus is the vine. My father is the husbandman. So the father is the husbandman. That means the farmer. He waits for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. So the only thing really among a few minor things keeping Jesus from coming back is that precious fruit of the earth, the harvest of souls. Everybody being, having the opportunity to be born again. That's what he's waiting for. The Lord is very patient and long-suffering and merciful. He is not willing to see his harvest rot in the field. Amen to that. That's why we've got to go tell people about Jesus. That's why we've got to be willing to witness. That's why we've got to be willing to talk to a total stranger in Walmart or in a parking lot or at the dinner table at a restaurant. We've got to be willing to tell anybody and everybody about Jesus. My pastor, Dr. Barclay, talks about um, his first pastor taught him about the 10-second rule. 
And he said, if you can deny your flesh for 10 seconds, you can witness to anybody. And he points out, it's easy to talk to a total stranger about anything. Hey, I like those shoes there. Hey, that's a nice car. Hey, uh, hey, go Preds, because they have a Predators jersey on. But it's amazing when the subject of Jesus is what we must talk to a total stranger about, we all of a sudden turn chicken little. (laughs) But Dr. Barclay's first pastor nearly 40 years ago said, if you can deny yourself for just 10 seconds and deny your comfort for just 10 seconds, you can walk up to anybody and say, did you know Jesus loves you and you need him desperately? It just takes 10 seconds. We got to make sure we're one of those laborers that can deny ourselves for anybody for 10 seconds. What's kind of scary is to think you denying yourself for 10 seconds can spare them from an eternity in hell. That's a pretty good return on a 10 second investment. 10 seconds buys somebody eternity in heaven. Why would you not do it? It's like giving 10 pennies to get a trillion dollars. Who would not give 10 pennies for a trillion dollars? It just shows how much flesh still rules our life. God help us. We must not only pray for more laborers for the harvest, but also be one of those laborers for the final harvest of souls. So we need to make sure we're one of those final laborers. We're not just church attenders. We're not just what my dad growing up always called said faith Christians. A said faith Christians is a Christian that just has faith because they said so. Uh, Yeah, I believe. Great. James says, show me. We don't just have said faith, but we actually act on it. We want to make sure we're one of these laborers. I might also throw out there, as I've studied eschatology for the last five or six months pretty in depth, which is really about all I've studied for the last five or six months, I see that in every dispensation and in every turn of events in God, everyone in their proper place has a unique walk with God. We don't walk with God like Enoch walked with God. Do you know that? You can see that, can't you? We don't know God like Moses knew God. We don't know God like Elijah or even Elisha knew God. We have our own unique walk with him, this side of the cross and this side of the rapture. And the church's relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is unique from any other person's walk and relationship. And part of our walk and relationship with Jesus Christ is that we are harvesters. Elisha was not a harvester. Moses was not a harvester. Enoch, who did Enoch win? Who did, who did Joshua win? Joshua didn't win anything but the land. He killed people. That was his walk with God. Who did David win? He, he was a warrior and a king. So our walk with Jesus Christ is very unique from other dispensations in that we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. He lives on the inside of us, and we win those on the outside of us. So it's a unique thing, and we need to be mindful of that. So let's look at the first final harvest, because there's several. Number one, the church. That's where we're at. Right now, it is the church's responsibility to testify of Jesus to as many people as possible. The church has been entrusted with the Great Commission. Nobody else has been entrusted with that. Not even the angels right now. The angels don't preach the gospel. We're better than the angels, according to Psalm 8 and Hebrews. We're made a little lower than them for right now, but we get to walk with God in glory and honor. The church has been entrusted with the Great Commission. We are to go into all the world. Look at Acts 1, 6, 7, and 8. Very familiar. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They're asking about end time events. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's about to leave them, and all they want to know is how does this end? 
just like a lot of folks now, how does this end? How does this end? And the Lord doesn't rebuke them for wanting to know, but look what he says to them. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. If you knew where the end was going to be, you know what you do? Sit and do nothing. In fact, you see that in the book of Acts, the early church went and did nothing for seven chapters because they thought Jesus was going to come back at any minute. They were waiting for the end to come. They sat there and did nothing. He said, go into all the world. They went into nowhere. You're looking at me like, really? Think about it. Acts 1, the Holy Spirit, uh, Lord Jesus comes up, goes up to heaven. Acts 2, the Holy Ghost comes. They go nowhere but Jerusalem till Acts 8. That's eight chapters. Then in Acts 8, there's a great persecution that arises and they're scattered. And where's the first place revival breaks out? Samaria, which is what Jesus Christ said. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Samaria. So they, did, they didn't even fulfill Acts 1-8 for probably eight or nine years because they just sat and waited for the end to come. We, we don't have that. We cannot sit and wait for the end to come. We're to be busy working until we hear the trumpet blow or until we breathe our last breath. We work and work and work. We're not to live our Christian walk in a fallout bunker. We're not to stockpile sea rations or MREs, water and batteries because the government's going to overthrow us and we're all going to die in a hail of fire and it's going to be red October all over again or something. That's dumb. How how can, even if the government runs our lives, we're still to preach the gospel like the Chinese Christians do underground. If they can promote the gospel to, I don't know, 250 million Christians under communistic regimes, we, we ought to be doing it. We have freedom, and, and some Christians don't do it. But Acts 8.1 proves that persecution does a lot to motivate a Christian. I don't want that to be my motivator. I want my love for Jesus Christ to be my great motivator. All right? He said, It's not for you know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but you shall receive power so you can sit and do nothing in a local church. No, it doesn't say that. You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost shall come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem. We'd say Cookville. And in Judea, we'd say the Upper Cumberland. And in Samaria, we'd say Sparta. <laughs> we'd say, <laughs> no offense, Brother Robert. <laughs> Samaria was the region that the, the Jews did not like. Samaritans were half-breed Jews. Uh, they, they were kind of, it was a racial thing. We might say, don't forget the hood. We might say, don't forget the trailer park. Whatever your racial prejudice is, that's your Samaria. Whatever those folks are, the Cajuns, don't forget those Cajuns. It might be maybe your prejudice against fat people. Don't forget to preach the gospel to fat people. Some people have a fat phobia. Uh, Whatever it is, that's who you're supposed to go preach to. I I would honestly say in this generation, it's the Muslims. I think we're terrified of them. I think the Lord keeps sending them to America, though, because we're afraid to go to Afghanistan and preach. So I'm praying more and more, Lord, give me the courage and the wisdom to win these Muslims. They come to my backyard. They're on my territory. They're mine. I'm going to win them to the true and living God. I'm not going to be afraid of some jihad. Jihad on you, man. You need Jesus. I dare you to try to kill me. The blood of Jesus covers me. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's the Hispanics you don't like. Whatever. I don't know. Everybody's a little goofy somewhere. That's your Samaria. And then the uttermost part of the earth. Don't worry about going to Africa if you can't win the person you hate. Don't worry about being a missionary to China if you can't win the person you hate. 
Don't worry about going overseas to Europe on a great weekend summer trip when you can't go evangelizing with us three Saturdays a month to our Samaria. So that's what Jesus is saying here. This is the Great Commission. Even before Jesus left, the disciples were curious about the end times. They wanted to know when the end was coming. Jesus instead pointed them to the immediate work at hand, preaching the gospel to the entire world. We are currently reaping this harvest. So I'm teaching that the first righteous harvest is our job. But we know at some point the rapture is going to happen. Now here's one of the things we've covered in 12 weeks that maybe was new to some of us. The gospel continues to be preached after the church is gone. The gospel continues to be preached after the church is gone. All right? We know that because what we're about to look at. We have 144,000 that testify of Jesus Christ. We have two witnesses that testify of Jesus Christ. And Acts 14 even tells us the angels are given the everlasting gospel to preach Jesus Christ. It's the only time angels will be given the gospel. It doesn't happen right now in the church age. But when this thing wraps up and we're raptured out of here, then begins Daniel's 70th week and Jewish time is reinstituted and the rules change again. We covered that several weeks ago, actually several months ago now, talking about dispensations. Every time there's a dispensation change in the things of God, in the progressive revelation of God to man, rules change a little bit and how things operate. We don't sacrifice turtle doves and billy goats right now. The rules have changed. We have the spotless lamb who's been sacrificed once and for all. We don't have to wear linen ephods to come to church. We can come in blue jeans. We can come in shorts. We can come in flip-flops. We don't have to do those things. The rules have changed. And when the, when the church is raptured in the church age or the dispensation of grace is wrapped up, Daniel's 70th week or Jewish time finishes that last week, seven years, things revert back to Mosaic law and the rules change again, except now it's the Jews preaching the gospel. The 144,000 that preach when the church is gone are Jews. The two witnesses are Jews. The angels, well, they're just angels. But you see the Jews being entrusted with the everlasting gospel. So let's look at this second harvest. The 144,000. We've all heard of that. The Jehovah's Witnesses just had a big convention these last couple days. Kind of offended me because I couldn't go work out at the fitness center because they were in all my parking places. So I had to stay at home and go for a run this weekend. They believe that there's only 144,000 people going to heaven. They're a little goofy. Don't argue with them. They probably know their Bible better than we know our Bible because they have a different Bible. They take this thing way out of messy context, and the Bible is very clear. The 144,000 or 12,000 for each of the 12 tribes of Judah. There's not a single Jew in here right now. Now, you might have an ounce of Jewish blood like you've got a whole bunch of Cherokee blood and Issaquah, and every one of us has a little bit of African blood in us, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. And Dr. James, you've got some white blood in you too. Look at how pale you are. <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to heaven if we're born again. Let the 144,000 do what they need to do. But let's look at what they do. After our departure, the Lord will anoint 144,000 witnesses to do the work of the gospel. We don't have time to cover all the scriptures in detail, but one of the things it says there in Revelation 7 is that death is not able to take them. And it says, stay, basically the angel says, hold off till I seal my name on these guys' foreheads. And it's probably women too. It doesn't say whether it's just men. Maybe men and women. Just like we know Israel has some great nationalistic women leaders. 
But because we know that nothing can touch them as long as they have the, the name of God sealed on their forehead, many eschatology experts or Bible prophecy experts believe that these 144,000 will have uninterrupted ministry for three and a half years. We know they only testify and preach for three and a half years. But many, or I should say some of the foremost Bible prophecy experts believe it's unhindered. These guys don't get martyred. They're unstoppable. I like that. If you think about it, Jesus Christ had three and a half years of unhindered ministry. He was unstoppable. He only died when he said, now I lay my life down. He's uh, Revelation 7, 4. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And they, there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So how can it be a bunch of white Americans meeting at the Hooper Eblen Center on a Saturday? In fact, I got one of their mailers, and I'm not, I'm not picking on them. They need Jesus, the real Jesus. They said, don't worry, you don't have to be one of Jehovah's Witnesses to attend. I said, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. I witness for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all the time. Amen. How arrogant of you. Amen. You don't have to be one of Jehovah's Witnesses. I want to tell them I'm a Jehovah's Witness. You, you don't do it as good as I do it. <laughs> Amen. Amen. The 144,000 witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, will be like 144,000 Apostle Pauls and Apostle Peters and Philip the Evangelist going throughout the earth preaching the gospel to the lost. They have three and a half years to do nothing but preach. The Bible even tells us that they're virgins. They never marry. They never have children. They, they, are, they are like the Navy SEALs of the Navy SEALs of gospel preachers. And you don't get to be one of them because you're not a Jew. <laughs> you're a good old white American or black African American or Ghanaian. That's what we are. We don't get to be any of these. I wouldn't want to be one of these. I'm happy being who I am, which is a good old Christian in this age. This is when God saw fit to have me birthed into the earth. Same for you. You ought to rejoice that you're alive now because it was in God's wisdom and time to let you live right now. So you've got something to do right now. Israel will be used to preach the gospel of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise God for it. So during that, uh, that after we're gone, the Lord will instantly raise up 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes. 12 times 12,000 is 144,000. They will be Jews, not white JWs meeting at the hoop on a Saturday morning for nine hours. Look at the great result. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 says, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne of God. Now let me just help you a little bit how the revelation works. You see a pattern over and over again in John's revelation, called the revelation. Lots of times a chapter can be broken up into two halves. He looks and sees something on earth, then he looks and sees the result in heaven. He looks and sees something happen on earth, then he looks and he sees the result in heaven. In this chapter, chapter 7, he looks and he sees 144,000 on earth being anointed and having God's name sealed in their forehead to testify of him. And then he says, and behold, I see in heaven a great multitude that no man can number. That's how we know the work of them is to win the loss because the result of anointing 144,000 Jews to preach the gospel is a great multitude that no man can number in heaven who stood before their throne, excuse me, the throne, and before their lamb clothed with white robes. That's salvation. And palms in their hands. That's what they did when their Savior, Jesus, came the first time. They finally got their act together. 
and cried with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. So here's your second harvest. The first harvest is the church. But even after we're gone, people will still be born again. These folks didn't go in the rapture. They, They got saved during the tribulation. In this vision, John sees first the 144,000 on the earth. Then he looks and he sees the result in heaven, an innumerable company of saints worshiping Jesus Christ at his throne. For me personally, this encourages me to let me know that I, I don't have to win the whole world to Jesus. If you've ever been really zealous to be a soul winner, sometimes, I don't, maybe this is just me, maybe it's you, I've been overwhelmed at times thinking, I gotta win everybody, I gotta win everybody, I gotta win everybody. And, and then it'll cause you to even argue with total strangers to try to get them into the kingdom. And you'll turn them away. Jesus never told us to argue or convince. He just said, testify. All you gotta do is say, God bless you, Jesus Christ loves you and wants you. That's all you have to do. They can shut you down. They can throw you. They can cuss you. You walk away. You've sown the seed or watered it. It's God's responsibility now. If, but some of us, and I've done this, oh, please, sir, please give your heart. What are you waiting for? Man, if you got to beg them, it's probably not genuine. I'm just not ready. Why are you not ready? I look in the book of Acts when folks got born again, they didn't beg any of them. In fact, the folks that got born again, they begged. What must I do to be saved? They were the ones begging. I think if we can kind of see this, that it's not our job to win the whole world. It's only our job to testify. It's God's responsibility to do what he wants to with it. He's the Lord that reaps the harvest. It'll take a lot of pressure off of us. I remember one time I was in southeast Missouri drilling on an Army Corps of Engineers dam. And I had this, this guy who was helping me. I was a geologist overseeing these two drillers. And I got to be buddies with this one guy. He had just come out of the Army and he was an explosive ordnance demolition guy, EOD guy. And uh, kind of a kooky guy, but that's what you get when you look at bombs all day long and hope they don't blow up in your face. And the Lord was dealing with me to witness to this family down at the lake on our day off. And I, I, my, my flesh didn't want to. My, I was afraid. And then it eat me up that I wasn't obeying. And, and then all of a sudden, my buddy, this EOD guy, could tell I'm cast down. He said, what's wrong? And I said, well, to be honest, he wasn't much of a believer. I said, to be honest with you, Jesus Christ keeps talking to me to go witness to that family down there, and I don't want to, and I'm afraid they're going to go to hell, and it's tearing me up. And he said, and he said some pretty profound things to me. He said, I don't mean to be rude, he said, but it seems like a whole big burden for one little man to think he should win the whole world by himself. And it really took a, a relief off me, and I was still disobedient, but he could see how much it was burdening me. But even he said, I don't think you, Chris, are supposed to win the whole world to Jesus. And this right here shows us that. And we're to do our part. Don't let my teaching give you an excuse. Well, I don't have to win them because somebody else will. But you can also get out from underneath a lot of bondage sometimes. When you get really zealous, and some of us have been there, you get consumed that, I can't win. I got to win them all. Got to win them all. Got to win them all. Not even Jesus Christ preached to everybody. Even the man at the gate, beautiful, that sat there every day from his childhood because he was crippled his whole life, Jesus Christ would have walked past him multiple times in three and a half years, yet he was never healed. Even Jesus walked past some people in his earthly ministry. We even know that some folks he would have walked past had they not cried out to him. Amen. So let's go on here. Look at the two witnesses. Just want to encourage you there. Even those, now the the 144,000, they preached the first three and a half years. 
then what happens is what the book of Daniel and the Revelation calls the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist goes into the Holy of Holies on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and he declares himself to be God. For the first three and a half years, he's just been a political figure working himself into a political position and the kingdoms of the world love him. But after three and a half years, he basically trumps all of them and says, worship me now, I'm God. At which point things actually get worse for him. But at that three and a half year mark, the two witnesses come on the scene and it's as if they are put on the scene to counter him because they are a thorn in his side till the day they are killed and they are unhindered for three and a half years. They preach for three and a half years and only when it is given unto them to die are they killed. So now stop and think about this. Jesus Christ, three and a half years of unhindered ministry. The 144,000, three and a half years of unhindered ministry. Then they go rapture in the heaven. Then you have the two witnesses, unhindered ministry for three and a half years. They die at the very end. The Lord will send in two mighty preachers called the two witnesses. We could write three whole lessons on that. We don't, we've taught it before, but we don't have time right now. They will preach, prophesy, and work signs and wonders the last three and one half years of the tribulation. Revelation eleven three says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Now you add that up, that's three and a half years. Uh, Jewish years, which are 360 day years based on the lunar calendar and not the Gregorian calendar that has a leap year every four years in which year that year that has a 366 day. You follow all that? All right. (laughs) Their death will cause the world to rejoice. They've been so successful for three and a half years preaching righteousness. The Bible tells us in the Revelation, you read the couple of verses after that, the world has a party. It's Christmas time. The Bible says that they exchange gifts at their death, that the whole world watches their bodies on television, much like we watched, uh, if you ever saw the movie Black Hawk Down, you saw what they did to our soldiers, and that was on television live back in 91, I believe. We saw what the Mogadishu rebels did with the soldiers of our special forces. They kicked their heads around like soccer balls, and the Arab nations cheered because death to the white Satan. We went in there to help some people, And they end up cutting the heads off our special forces and use them as a soccer ball. The Arab nations, the Muslim nations rejoiced over that. It'll be very similar. I'm not saying the Muslims are are anti-Christ at all. Uh, In fact, we covered in our lessons on the anti-Christ, he has no religion. He's not a Muslim. He's not President Obama. The Bible says he has no God but himself. He regards no man's God. The whole world will watch the death of these two witnesses, probably on television, maybe on their phone, their iPhone, on the palm of their hand, and they'll rejoice at it. It will be Christmas for them. They'll exchange gifts, and their death will cause the world to rejoice. Their resurrection, though, three and a half days later, like Jesus Christ, will cause great fear to come to them, to the whole world. Their rapture into heaven, so they don't just get raised from the dead, they get raptured into heaven, all this like Jesus did. They're not Jesus. We know that. They're called the sons of oil from Zechariah chapter 13, I believe. They stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. I personally believe it's Moses and Elijah based on the Mount of Transfiguration. They are the two witnesses that stood beside the Lord of glory. They are called the sons of oil. That's a whole lot of eschatology there for you. Their rapture into heaven will produce a great earthquake in Jerusalem, just like the Lord Jesus' resurrection produced a great earthquake. And that great earthquake will kill 7,000 people in Jerusalem. 
But the remnant, will, the remnant of Jerusalem will turn and repent and give glory to the God of heaven. So there is a harvest. The remnant, 7,000 will be killed. One-tenth of the city will be destroyed. 7,000 will be killed. So maybe that means there's 70,000. That's all that's left in Jerusalem. So that means maybe the other 63, we're just, we don't know. We're just conjecturing. 63,000 harvested at the, at the rapture of these two witnesses. So there's a harvest right there. You follow me so far? We're looking at harvest. So those are folks we can't win to Jesus because the two witnesses have to. There's a great number that we can't win to Jesus because the 144,000 are going to. So this should really give us some encouragement that this gospel is unstoppable even under the reign of the Antichrist. The remnant will turn and repent and give glory to the God of heaven. Thank God for it. Folks are still getting born again under the Antichrist reign. And mind you, that earthquake is at the end of the three and a half years. That's at the last of the tribulation. All right. Now we come to the exciting harvest called what I call the angels doing a great harvesting. Unique to the tribulation is the gospel preaching angel. There has never been a angel preach the gospel. Now, a lot of cults in American history have been started by a preacher getting dingbatty and listening to an angel preach the gospel. If he had had good doctrine, he'd have known that it was an angel of light, Lucifer, changing him, the preacher, into a false apostle. Mormonism started by a man listening to a gospel-preaching angel. William Branham ruined his ministry, if you know who William Branham was in the 50s and 60s, because he began to listen to a gospel-preaching angel. No doubt, probably, uh, 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 what's the Kool-Aid guy? Jim Jones, he probably, I, don't, I don't, haven't studied his life much, he might have started listening to a gospel-preaching angel. There are no gospel-preaching angels right now. You can't find it anywhere in the New Testament. They don't even preach the gospel to Jesus. They are sent to be a messenger and not the gospel message. They sent to give directions, but they can't preach. The Bible says they long to look into what we have. How can they preach what they're looking for? You can only preach what you have found. But unique to the rapture, excuse me, the tribulation is now this gospel preaching angel. Currently, angels do not preach the gospel. It has not been entrusted to them. This will change when the church is raptured. Even Paul said, though we or another or an angel come and preach any other gospel unto you, let them be accursed. Paul said right there, you got an angel coming to preach a gospel to you, let them be accursed. He set the record straight there. I recently heard of a, a, a pastor in our state who um, I would run for my life if I was in the church. He testified uh, that no, no less than 50 times had people seen an angel speak into his ear while he was preaching. And the people could hear what the angel was telling him to say. And that was the very words he was saying. That to me sounds like a demon. I preach from the scriptures and what the Holy Ghost tells me down here, not what something whispers in my ear right here. He said, if I've heard it once, I've heard it 50 times. Pastor, we saw an angel talking in your ear while you were preaching tonight. And the angel would say one thing and we could hear it. And then you'd repeat it moments later. Run away. Run to the nearest Baptist church or Methodist church where they still open the book and preach from the book. We like the supernatural, but not weird supernatural. So just keep that in mind. We don't follow any angels right now. Not at all. Not at all. No, 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 no. We follow the Bible. We have a more sure word of prophecy, the Bible. 
Let's look at Revelation 14, 6 and 7. And he said, John said, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach. Now that is unique. Unto them that dwell on the earth. So f- f- oh, if John hadn't seen it and wrote it, we, we couldn't say it's possible. He said, I saw this angel given the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Look at how simple the gospel is here, Christian. Saying with a loud voice, you don't whisper it. It isn't something you squeaky sissy-fy with. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. That's the gospel. (laughs) We might say in this dispensation, fear Jesus. And give glory to him. Takes you three seconds to say it and then just keep pushing your buggy in the Walmart. Let them do whatever they want to. Cuss you, curse you, judge you, criticize you. You just preach the gospel like the angel did. It's very simple. It doesn't have to be this long expository, exegetical, apologetical thing. You just say, man, fear Jesus and obey him. And obey the gospel. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. That's the angel preaching the gospel. From verse 7, you can see how simple the gospel can be. Fear God and give him glory. No doubt angels can travel faster than humans and they will help preach this gospel to the ends of the earth. The Bible says it's given to preach to every nation and tongue. So angels can disappear and reappear. So they can preach to one person here, then they show up in Tahiti preaching to somebody there. I think that's going to be pretty fast evangelism. Faster than what we can do. Uh, One, um, who is it? I believe it's, it's Tim LaHaye. Tim LaHaye believes in his eschatology that more gospel and more evangelism will be done in these seven years than the church has done in 2000. That's Tim LaHaye. He's a very conservative theologian, but that's his doctrine. I I like that. I believe it. I can see it from this. He believes that more gospel and more evangelism and more souls will be saved in these last seven years of the tribulation than the church has ever done. I can see it. You got angels. You got 144,000 Apostle Pauls. It's It's tense. It's intense. It's a dense work. It's a quick work. It kind of makes me want to try for it. <laughs> so, no, 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 I'm not leaving you anything. I'm not going to leave you anything for you to gleam. Ain't no, no sheaves to gleam, gleam in the field like Boaz did for Ruth. No, uh, I'm going to get as many as I can. Amen. 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 That's right. How do we know that the, these angels are successful? Because the next verse says, and, and I looked, same chapter, next couple verses, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now it's quite possible that is that final harvest right before Armageddon. And this is the reaping of what the, evangel- the, evan- the, uh, excuse me, the two witnesses have preached. And this is the reaping of what the angels have preached. Now, I just had lunch this week with Reverend Dwayne Byerly. That was Dr. Sutton's son in the faith. And I asked him, I said, that guy that sits on the cloud there with the golden crown who looks like the son of man, is that Jesus? He said, I believe it is. I said, then why is an angel telling him what to do? He said, and I hadn't thought about that. I said, I don't have an answer. I just saw it yesterday. I said, let's go study it. Because I said, since when do angels tell Jesus Christ what to do? Maybe it just is likened to the Son of Man. I didn't say it was the Son of Man. Because everywhere throughout the Revelation, Jesus Christ is called the Lamb or the Son of God or Jesus Christ. 
But either way, you got this man likened to the son of man with a golden crown and a sharp sickle sitting on a cloud. And another angel comes and tells him, thrust in thy sickle. And he does, and the earth is reaped. That's the last righteous harvest. After that, it's done. No more righteous can be reaped. And the, uh, the thing to point out is the angels shall reap the final great harvest. Then shall the end come. That brings us back to Matthew 24 and Luke 22, where Jesus Christ said, this gospel shall be preached into the ends of the earth. Then the end shall come. All right. The God, now, let me, let me say something that might throw your doctrine counterclockwise. Uh, but based on what we've looked at and you've got scriptures and I'll stand by them. It does not look like the church must totally evangelize the world for us to go. Can you kind of maybe see that? It does not look like the church must totally evangelize the world for us to be raptured. Because right there, the last ones that do it are the angels. Then the end shall come. Now that does not give us place to be lazy. We'll be judged for that. We can't be the unjust steward that took our assignment and buried it in the sand and said, I was afraid. No, I think for our livelihood and well-being, we need to be evangelizing more people. I refuse to be afraid of Muslims blowing up my community. I'm going to preach to them to keep my family safe. I'm going to combat their demons with the gospel. If you as a Christian bury your head in the sand, it could cost your family. So I just want to show you, it doesn't look like we as the church have to do it all for the end to come. Because the end isn't really till the end of the tribulation. That's the end. The rapture is not the end. The rapture is just the beginning of the tribulation. You follow? Okay. Let me quickly run through the harvest you know nothing about, but you will when we're done here in three minutes. The wicked harvest. I'm going to read quick. The final harvest to be reaped is the wicked, the enemies of God. The Bible speaks about this supernatural harvest in several passages. The angels will reap this harvest. Isaiah 63, 3 and 4. I have trodden down the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. That's talking about the battle of Armageddon. All right? Keep that in mind, the winepress of wrath. Isaiah saw the day of the vengeance of the Lord. It was a winepress of wrath. A wine press, you've seen it on the movies or like, you know, the Italian commercials. They get in that big vat and they stomp the grapes. That's how they make wine, or really grape juice. They roll their pants up. You hope that they clean their toes and shave their legs. And that's how they do it. You don't want some hairy Italian man in there wine pressing your, your Welches. Because then you go to drink it at communion. You know, Pastor, what's up with the grape juice? Oh, and the guy didn't shave his legs. That's, the, that's a wine press. You know, we're Americans. We don't necessarily understand what wine presses are. That's a wine press. <laughs> Hopefully they wear like rubber boots or something. Uh, it is a wine press of wrath. This wine press required fruit. Joel saw the fruit required for the wine press of wrath. Joel 3.13 says, uh, Put you in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The vats overflow. King James says fats, but it's vats. For their wickedness is great. That's at the valley of decision. So put your sickle in. The Lord is saying, put your sickle in for the harvest is ripe. Not the righteous harvest. What, what is right? Ripe. Their wickedness. Their wickedness is ripe. Uh, I got a lot of things I want to say, but we got to move on. 
The fruit necessary for the Lord's winepress of wrath is the wicked. The Lord will reap a harvest of wicked souls that have purposely rejected him and blasphemed him, and he will crush them. John saw this very image literally thousands of years later after Joel and Isaiah. Revelation 14 says, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. So this is right after the righteous harvest has been sickled. Here comes another angel with another sickle for another harvest. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud uh, cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. The vine of the earth is the Antichrist. Jesus Christ is the true vine. The Antichrist is the vine of the earth. And the wicked damned are the fruit of the Antichrist. They, They proceed forth out of him. That's another teaching as well. For her grapes are fully ripe. Those that come out of the Antichrist and his rebellion, that that spirit, not just the man, but that spirit of rebellion. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now that winepress is literally the Valley of Megiddo, also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, also called the Valley of Jezreel. They all have the same name. This is the Upper Cumberland. It's called the Plateau. It's called Putnam County. We have things that have multiple names. You follow? That wine press is literally a battlefield. That historians tell us more battles have been fought in that valley than any other place on the planet. It's perfectly flat. It's so many miles wide by about 20 or 30 miles long. It's a perfect place to kill people. Many biblical battles have been fought there. And the wine press was trodden outside the city. That's funny. That's where Jesus died, outside the city. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus outside the city, and the wrath of God will be poured out on the heathen outside the city because the city is called the city of peace. And blood came out of the wine press, literally, even unto the horse's bridles, by the space of 1,600 furlongs. That's about 200 square miles, if I remember my statistic. So you've got blood five feet deep, 200 square miles. At the Valley of Megiddo will be at least 200 million men. That's the army that comes out of the Orient to destroy the Antichrist that most Bible prophecy experts believe they get to destroy the Antichrist because they're mad at him for what he's done. But they hear the preaching of the two witnesses and they say, you mean this Jesus is coming back? And they align themselves with him to fight against the Lord Jesus Christ together. They come to that valley because God has called them there. And the angels have reaped them and gathered them there. It's all angelic bringing them there. And then Jesus Christ shows up with us, his army, and that battle lasts an hour. That's it. The Lord Jesus Christ destroys the wicked in one hour in one valley. And blood is five foot deep for 200 square miles. (laughs) That's what the Bible says. We're Bible people here. I do believe a man named Jonah was swallowed by fish. And I do believe the Bible. This harvest will be brought to the Valley of Megiddo for what is famously known as Armageddon. Armageddon is the Greek Armageddon, Valley of Megiddo. This battle will only last for one hour and God wins. So what are we upset about? (laughs) Oh my gosh, this, oh my gosh, that we win. Just walk it out. Jesus also spoke of angels harvesting the wicked, Matthew 13, 40 through 42. As there, therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. Make sure you're not one of those things that offend. And them which do inequity, 
and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So there again we see angels reaping the wicked damned. Let us walk with Jesus and reap his harvest as these final days close. Be of good cheer. We're on the winning team. All that is left to do is walk with God. So that completes our 13 weeks of eschatology. Truthfully, we've only scratched the surface, but I need a break. There's other things I'd like to study now. Perhaps maybe in a year we'll, we'll write another set of lessons and we'll cover the revelation more in depth. Maybe some of those things more in depth. I pray that you got something out of this and it encouraged you. Father, bless this Sunday school class and all these folks that have come out faithfully for 13 weeks. Father, may the, the end time studies be one of hope and encouragement, realizing that it's what you want. It's what you're going to do and you cannot be changed. Therefore, we just come into agreement with you and we say, yes, Lord. Yes, we walk with you. We'll obey you. Lord, we thank you for Sunday school in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we'll be ready for next service in about 10 minutes.